Psalm 119 this evening, and we're going to look at verses 137 through 144 as we continue our study here in the the book of Psalms, and particularly here in Psalm number 119. And this is the 18th section of Psalm 119. Of course, as we mentioned when we began the study, each section is based on a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's in alphabetical order if you were to read and speak Hebrew. And each of these verses would have started, I don't know, most of our Bibles have the the Hebrew letter of the alphabet. I'm not going to try to pronounce it there for you. The English-sized version pronunciation starts with the letter T. Um, But each of these verses in the Hebrew language would start with that Hebrew letter. And it's kind of like an acrostic. So we lose some of that in English, but really this evening we're going to think about the thought that God's word, thy word, is my passion. So Psalm 119, verse number 137, says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Thy word is my passion, and two main points that we're going to look at this evening, think about, is the psalmist's perspective of the purity of God, and then second of all, we will look at the passion that the psalmist had. But first of all, we'll notice as he looks at God and at God's word, how he notices the purity of God. The first thing that we notice there in verse number 137 is that he says that God is righteous And God's judgments are upright. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. That word righteous means to be holy, to be sinless, to be pure in heart. Now, if you really stop and think about that definition, what it means to be righteous, and you compare it to yourself, you compare it to mankind in general, we find a, a great contrast there, right? To be holy, to be sinless, to be pure in heart. It is a truth that you and I would not really know what righteousness is if it were not for God. God is the only one who is righteous. He is the one who really defines for us what righteousness is. There is no other being, dead or alive, that has ever come even close to being righteous. He alone is righteous. But when we think about the fact that God is righteous, that God is pure in heart, that God is holy, that God himself is without sin, that's a comfort to you and I this evening, that we know that God is righteous. It's something that you and I can rest in, that we can rest in the fact that he is 
now, and he always has been, and he always will be righteous. Especially when we think about his dealings with mankind. The way that he deals with you and me. It is good to know that God is righteous. That God's not somehow impure in his motives. He's not impure in his heart. In the way that he deals with you and I, he doesn't have some kind of a a secondary agenda that he's hiding from us and one day will be revealed and he'll say, ha ha, got you. See, I hid this from you all the time. No, that would be like mankind, but that is not how God is. God is righteous. Not only is he righteous, but he is also upright in his judgments. That word upright means honest, just, not deviating from correct moral principles. The judgments of God are upright. You think about a pole, if you're going to set posts for a fence, you want those posts to be set upright. You don't want them to be leaning a little one way or a little the other. If you drive down a road and you see a fence and someone was sloppy in the way that they set their their fence posts, I don't know what it is about this area. (laughs) But the fences, that the privacy fences that people put around their yards, I don't know if it's the soil and the soil just, it doesn't have enough there to anchor the posts, but I have never seen privacy fences as wonky as around here. Some of the neighborhoods up around Ward, you drive by and those fences, they're all leaning one way and then they're leaning the other way and a bunch of them blew over in this storm. But you know, when I look at that, I think, wow, somebody did a terrible job with that. They, they didn't set those posts in a manner that they would stay upright. Now, there is someone who did some, some uh, fencing work on campground. I think it's campground. They're just down from Walmart Neighborhood Market. And I drove by every day for a while on my bus route. And I watched as he put in his, his posts. And he did a good job. And you can drive down and you can look at that, and they're all even all the way across on the top. And they're nice and upright. They're plumb. They're straight. They're true. But when you think about David here, he's using this word upright in reference to the judgments of God. You think about a post that's upright, it means it's not leaning one way or the other. It's not leaning to one side. It is perfectly true and straight and plumb. And you know, brethren, the judgments of God, they are perfectly straight. They're perfectly true. They are upright. God is not imperfect. He's not uncareful in his judgments. His judgments are not prone to being biased or warped in any way. His judgments are pure. You think about this, you and I, we don't have to come up with a way to try to bribe God. You think about judges in this world, and hopefully this wouldn't happen in this country, but I know that in some countries in the world it does happen, that if you want a good judgment, you slip a little bit of money into the right hands, and that judge ends up with, you know, some benefits by way of that money, and judgment is executed in your direction. God's not like that. And that's comforting to you and I. Because when I think about trying to bribe God, I don't have deep enough pockets 
to try to do that. I don't have any ability to try to impress God and say, hey, God, you know, work some judgments my way because of this. There's nothing I can offer to God. There's nothing that I can bring to the table that would improve God's life. His judgments are upright. You and I, we don't have to try to make sure that we hire the right lawyer. You think about here on earth, if you don't have money, if you don't have the cash to hire a good lawyer, and you've got to go stand before the judge on some charges, and you get assigned a public defender, you're kind of rolling the dice there. You might get a good one. You might get a good lawyer who just has a big heart and he wants to help people out. But chances are, kind of the stigma on public defenders is that they're just biding their time until they can make it to a big firm. So they're not really watching out for you, you know. And so you go before judgment with that judge and you're not sure what's going to happen. Hey, if the other guy has a better lawyer, I might lose. You know, God's judgments are always just. And really, if we stop and think about it, there's only one lawyer. There's only one advocate that you and I can get when it comes to our dealings with God, and that's Jesus Christ. And in a sense, he's like a public defender, right? He offers defense to any who will come to him. But you know, unlike the public defenders of this world, Jesus Christ, his track record is 100%. Any case that he takes on, he wins. He's the judge's own son. But you know, it's not crooked judgment because all of the guilt has been paid for. All of the sin, all of God's judgment and justice are met. Mercy and truth, the Bible says, they've met together in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God's justice is fully satisfied. What a Savior that you and I have. But God, his judgments, they're upright. They're not warped. They're not twisted. They're pure. They're honest. They're not deviating from correct moral principles. So as David thought about God, he praises God in prayer here. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. He goes on in the next verse, and we'll see that God's testimonies are righteous and very faithful. Verse 138, he says, Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. The testimonies of God. In other words, that which God has declared to be true. That which God has sworn. That which God has attested to. Which really, if we stop and think about it, everything that God says, right? Those are the testimonies of God. God is backing that up. We know for a fact that what God says is true. And David here says that the testimonies of God, the things that God has said, are righteous. The things that God has commanded are righteous. Everything that God has said, every commandment that God has issued, is righteous. He has never sinned in word or in deed. So when God makes a statement, when he declares something to be true, we can agree with David here that what God has said is righteous. You know, the declarations that God has made, the testimonies that God has commanded about man and about sin, they're righteous. God is righteous to condemn mankind for their sin. 
the things that God has said, the declarations that he has made about how to be right with him are righteous. All of God's testimonies are righteous. They are pure in heart. They are pure in motive. They are sinless. But not only are his judgments, or his testimonies, excuse me, that he has commanded, not only are they righteous, but he goes on and he says, there in verse number 138, that they are righteous and very faithful. Very faithful. You see, the declarations that God has made, they don't change. They don't change depending on who it is. They don't change from day to day. They don't change from year to year. They don't change any time. The, the testimonies that God has commanded, the things that God has said about how to be made right with Him, the things that God has said about sin, about heaven, about justice and judgment, the, the, the standards that God has given us, they don't change. They're very faithful. They're the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change the standard on how to enter heaven. That's a good thing. Because if he changes it, he might make it harder. He might make it to where oh, now it's impossible. If God changed his mind and said, well, no, you know what? No one can be saved by the blood of Christ anymore. You've got to work your way to heaven. Well, now we're all sunk. Now none of us have a chance. God's judgments, God's testimonies, the things that he has commanded are faithful. They don't change. He doesn't change his mind. But not only that, he says they are very faithful. The idea behind this is that God's testimonies, the things that God has said, God himself exceeds faithfulness. When we think of the most faithful thing that we can conjure up, God is more faithful. God exceeds that. God defines for us, just like righteousness, God defines for us what it means to be faithful. The faithfulness of God goes beyond any idea or concept of faithfulness that you and I can truly comprehend. We think of the most faithful things. We think of the sun, the moon, and the stars. They are faithful. God has made them to be faithful. They rise, they set, they appear in the same places. We can set our, our clocks by them. We can extrapolate thousands of years out what time the sun is going to rise on July 22nd. Because it's faithful. Because the sun comes up and it's, it's predictable. Because God has made it to be so. But you know, God is more faithful than that. He is the one who created it. And David here recognizes that God's testimonies are righteous and they are very, very faithful. Not only that, he goes on and he says in verse number 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Now recognize David here, he's making a prayer to God. He's talking to God. He says, God, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. That word pure means to be clear, to be free from defilement. I believe it was last week we talked about pure water. We like pure water. We don't like water with impurities in it. If someone gave you a glass of water 
and they said this is 99.9% pure, but it has 0.01% of poison in it. Do you want to take a drink now? No, you, okay. Well, depending on what kind of poison, I might be okay. But if it's the wrong kind of poison, even that 0.01%, or depending on how large the glass of water is, it might be a fatal dose. No, I don't want anything to do with it. Why? Because it's impure. It's tainted. You know, God's word is very pure. The, the physical book that you and I can hold in our hands today is very pure. We know that because God has promised that he would keep his word, that he would preserve it, that you and I would be able to have his word, that he would not let one jot or one tittle pass away, that he would make sure that his word comes to pass. God's word is pure. Not only that, the things that God says are pure. If we stop and think about the things in this life, there's almost nothing that we can classify as truly pure. You start reading articles online, and you begin to find all these articles now about plastic and how microplastic is in our water. And, you know, they, they go down deep in the ocean, and they take a sample of water, and they find microplastics down there. And they sample drinking water and streams way up high in mountains, and they find microplastics and forever chemicals and all these kind of things, right? Because even things that we think are pure, we can only filter them so much. That's why they never say something is 100% pure. They always put that little caveat on there. It's 99.99% pure, but there might be some little parts or some little particles in there that aren't pure. But you know, when it comes to God's word, God's word is beyond pure. It is 100% pure. We are sin-cursed and defiled beings. We always drag some level of defilement around with us, even into things that we strive to keep as pure as possible. But the word of God is set in contrast to you and I. God's word is pure. The psalmist recognizes God's word for what it is, very pure. It exceeds purity. There is no defilement whatsoever in the word of God. The things that God has said and will say are pure and always will be pure. And it's, it's a comforting fact because when you stop and think about what does God's word do for us? Ultimately, God's word brings life. It brings life physically, right? We're all here because of the word of God, because God spoke this world into existence, because God made Adam you and I are here because of God's word. But not only that, spiritually, God's word brings life. It is God's word that brings spiritual life to an individual. God's word is pure. It is not defiled. But then he goes on, and next we'll notice that David noticed, in thinking about the purity of God, he noticed that God's righteousness is everlasting and that his law is the truth. There in verse number 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. 
So we see, once again, as the psalmist opened this section of Psalm 119, he echoes once again, speaking of the righteousness of God. He started the psalm, or he started this section in verse 137 by saying, Righteous art thou, O Lord. And now he goes on in verse 142, and he says, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It's like he stopped and he was thinking about the righteousness of God. He was thinking about how God is a righteous God, and it made him think about the fact that God's righteousness goes on and on and on and on. It is an everlasting righteousness. It doesn't stop. It reaches from one end of time all the way to the other end of time. That's impressive. If you stop and really begin to think about everlasting, something that lasts forever, I mean, legitimately forever. Not like an advertising campaign. It lasts forever. Well, yeah, as long as the company lasts or, you know, as long as my lifetime. That's not forever. That's just a short little window. No, God's righteousness actually lasts forever. It is everlasting. God's righteousness is not just something that he had at one point or something that he works himself up to His righteousness is that which lasts for all of eternity. Also, it is not a righteousness that lasts only when under intense scrutiny or observation. You know, mankind, we can be righteous. I'll put that in air quotes. We can act right. We can behave. We can be good when we're under intense scrutiny. When there's someone watching us closely, when there's a proctor in the room, during the exam, right? People tend to behave themselves. They tend to not cheat as much on the exam because there's someone there physically watching them. You know, mankind can work up a kind of righteousness when he is really working at it. But you know, it's a righteousness that starts and stops. It's a righteousness that fails. But God's righteousness is not like that. His righteousness is everlasting. It stretches on and on and on. Not only that, he says that God's law is the truth. The truth. There is no law that is truer than the law of God. There is no book that is purer and more true than God's word. And there is no substitution that can be made no better law to live by. There's no real truth to be had outside of the law of God. You know, mankind today, they want to substitute. They want to say, well, this is my truth. There's no such thing. There is truth and there is lies. There is not my truth and your truth and, well, I identify as this and so that's truth. No. There is truth and there is falsehood. The psalmist here rightly says God's word is truth. You and I don't get to play, uh, let's redefine the word of God. No, we come to God's word, what God says is truth, whether I like it or not. And there's a lot of times when I come to God's word and I see the truth of God's word and you know what happens? I don't like it. I say, well, God, I don't like that truth. I want, to, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. This is a problem that all mankind 
has. But David says here, rightly so, that God's word, God's law is truth. The law that God has decreed, this is right, this is wrong, it is right. It is truth. God's word, his law is truth. Not only that, David goes on and he says that God's testimonies are everlastingly righteous. In the last verse of the section, verse 144, he says, The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. David goes on now to state that not only is God's righteousness and an everlasting righteousness, also the righteousness of God's testimonies is everlasting. God's testimonies, his declarations that he has made, they never change. They are righteous. We talked about this. Though times change, nations rise and fall, ways of life change, God's testimonies remain the same. The things that God has sworn to, the things that God has said, this is truth, God's word, it doesn't change. It's everlastingly righteous. God's word is just as right today, right now, in the year 2023. It's just as right now. His, his testimonies, the things that God has declared, they are just as right for you and I to live by as they were for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It hasn't changed. God's word is still true. It's just as true. It's just as righteous today as it always has been. You know, the things that society considers to be right, the things that society considers to be in vogue, the things that society allows, they change from day to day, from generation to generation. It seems like anymore it's changing from week to week and month to month. You, you go to sleep for a month, you disappear, you go offline, you come back and you read a newspaper, newspaper article, and you say, what in the world? What changed in the last month? How, how are they saying that this is okay now? It doesn't even make sense. It's mind-boggling. But you know, God, he hasn't changed. His word, it hasn't changed. The things that God has declared, they have an everlasting righteousness. So we see his perspective of the purity of God, but then second of all this evening, we'll see his passion, the passion of the psalmist. And we notice it, first of all, in verse number 139. You'll notice there he says, My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy word. My zeal hath consumed me. That word zeal means a passionate ardor in the pursuit of something. Passionate ardor in the pursuit of something. It's getting fired up. It's being excited. You know, a lot of people, they have zeal. A lot of people around here, they have zeal concerning the Razorbacks. It's what gets them fired up. You know, some people, they have zeal concerning different pursuits. And if you get in the way of their pursuit, they're going to be zealous about it. They're going to let you know there's going to be some ardor that they have, some passionate ardor in the, in the pursuit of that thing. But David says here that my zeal hath consumed me. The idea of consumed means to be eaten up, to be burnt up. You know, if you, if you take a match 
and you light it to a pile of dry kindling, it's going to be consumed. That fire is going to eat it up. And depending on the species of wood, there won't be much ash left. If it's dry wood, pretty much regardless of the species, there won't be much ashes left. It will ignite, it will be consumed. David here says that my zeal hath consumed me. Why? Because mine enemies have forgotten thy word. That word forgotten means to lose the remembrance of. It means that something is slighted by deeming it not important or worthy of attention. So David says, mine enemies, they've looked at the word of God and they've said, whatever. Oh, we don't need to follow that. We don't need to heed that. We don't need to pay attention to what God has to say. It's not worth much. Let's go and live the way that we want to live. They had deemed the ways of God and his word as something not worth following. David said that because of this, he had been consumed by his zeal for the word of God. He said, mine enemies, they've forgotten your word, but God, I'm passionate about it. I have a passionate ardor that is consuming me in the pursuit of your word. That's quite an attitude to have about God's word. To look at others around you and to say, wow, you know, these people, they've forgotten God's word. But for David, that didn't discourage him. That didn't make him say, oh, well, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe God's way and God's word really isn't that important. No, for David, it became a fire that burned within him that said, you know what? They don't think God's word is worth anything. That makes me want it more. That makes me know that God's word is worth a whole lot. I want to pursue after it. I have some zeal that has eaten me up. His passionate ardor in the pursuit of God's word was so strong that it consumed him. You know, remembering God's word, it ought to be something that marks us. It, it ought to be something that marks those that say, I'm a child of God. We ought to have some zeal that consumes us when it comes to God's word. Now, I want you to stop this evening and to think about that for a minute. Can you say honestly before God? Remember, he's praying this. This is a prayer to God. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Can you say before God this evening that the zeal of God's word is something that eats you up? Something that consumes you? That you have a passionate ardor? in the pursuit of God and His Word? Now, in some ways, I would say yes for all of us in this room, given the fact that here we are on a Wednesday night, right? There's other places that we could be. There's other things that we could be doing. And I hope that it's a love, a zeal for God's Word that has brought you here this evening. You have to be slightly crazy in the eyes of this world to spend so much time at church, right? But if you think about the attitudes that define you, a passionate ardor in the pursuit of God's word, brethren, that ought to be something that defines us. Far too often, we're consumed by the passions and the pursuits of this world 
to the neglect of the remembrance of God's word. He says, Therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 140, he says, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. So we've noticed the passion of the psalmist and that his zeal consumed him when he came to the word of God. But then next, we notice that he had passion. He loved the word of God. As he thought about the purity of God's word, he recognized it as one of the primary reasons that he loved God's word. The purity of God's word provides for us stability and the knowledge that we need for, for life and for eternity. You know, without God's word, we don't know what we need to know. Without God revealing truth to us about how to be made right with him, we're sunk. We ought to be thankful for God's word. We ought to be thankful that it's pure, that we can pin our life and our, our life in eternity to God's word. That's a blessing this evening. David was very thankful for the purity of God's word. He was thankful that he could trust it with his life and his eternity. Oh, that you and I would learn to love the word of God like that. Next, he says in verse number 141, I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. I am small and despised. Now, I don't know how big David was in reality. I don't know if he was a short little guy. I don't, even if he was short, I don't think he was necessarily physically small. The Bible reveals him to us as a man of war. Now, we know that you know, it was a miracle of God that David was slain by the stone. But you know, David was a man of war. The Bible tells us that several times. He hung out with some guys who were men of war. And you know, they weren't men of war who sat behind a joystick controlling a drone like a drone pilot or something. You know, these were the frontline guys. The guys that hung out with David were his 30 mighty men. And we've, we've talked about this before. Those were some pretty rough guys. One of them, he jumped down in a, a, a pit on a snowy day and he slew a lion. And he slew two lion-like men of Moab. And another guy, he stood in a bean patch and he took on a whole bunch of guys all by himself. That's some rough characters. That's some guys who were accustomed to war, some guys who were strong. And David, he was right there with them. He was right there fighting alongside of them. So he was a man of war. He was a man with some strength. But notice how he speaks about himself here. I am small and despised. This verse reveals to us the inner turmoil of David. As he looked at the circumstances around him, as he looked at those around him, he realized that he was small and despised. You think about David with his son Absalom. He must have felt small and despised. To go from being the king of Israel and now suddenly he's running for his life. The kingdom is rallying around his son and his very own son is trying to kill him. That would be heart-wrenching. That would make you feel small and despised. You think about David as he waited for the throne. He had been anointed the king of Israel, and yet, for many years, he would not ascend the throne. He would have felt small and despised. But as he felt small and despised, rather than turning to the wisdom of this world, rather than turning to the ways of this world, in order to get what he wanted, he turned to God. In times of sore trial and temptation, 
It's tempting to give in to the ways of today. It's tempting to give in to the ways of the world. It's tempting to give in to the wisdom of the world, to forget the precepts of God. But David cries out in his trouble and recognizes the benefits of keeping God's precepts, particularly in the midst of troubles. I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. It made him pursue after God's word even more. Next, he says, trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. Trouble and anguish. He describes them like two dogs that have come up behind him, and each one has a leg. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me. That'd be painful. Two dogs, one on each leg, trying to drag you backwards. It'd be concerning. And certainly, as we go through the trials and troubles of this life, sometimes trouble and anguish can take a hold on us. Sometimes as we face dark valleys, trouble and anguish, we find are our companions. But you'll notice in the midst of these troubling circumstances, what did David look to? Where did David set his affection and his attention? The end of that verse, verse 143 He says, yet, a word of contrast. He says, they've got a hold of me. Trouble and anguish, they've got me. They're trying to drag me down, yet, thy commandments are my delight. You know, so often as we face trouble, what do we look for? We look for deliverance. We look for the end of the problem. We say, hey, if I could just get past this thing, then I can be happy. If, God, you'll just remove this out of my life, then I'll have peace. Then I'll have joy. Then I'll finally be at rest. Then I'll finally, everything will be good. But you know the problem is you get from one trouble. God delivers you from that. You get past that. Trouble and anguish release. What happens? Well, you find yourself right in the middle of something else. And if we're not careful, we'll live that way. And we'll think, hey, if I can get past this thing, if I can get beyond this, then I'll be happy. Notice what David did. He said, yet thy commandments are my delights. God, though I'm in the midst of trouble, though trouble and anguish have a hold on me, your commandments are my delights. David had found that the best place to go was to God. He purposed in his heart. He established his thoughts upon the word of God. He delighted in God's commandments. He came to God's word and he said, God, the things that you've commanded me, that's what I'm going to delight in. I'm going to make myself happy with the word of God. How do you do that? How how do you delight in the commandments of God? Well, you got to stop and you got to get your focus off of trouble and anguish that have a hold on you. And you've got to purposefully set it on the commandments of God. And you know what? If you stop in the midst of trouble and anguish and you get your eyes on the Word of God and you begin to think about the promises of God, you begin to think about the righteousness of God, you begin to think about the faithfulness of God. What what has David been doing this entire portion, right? He's been thinking about how faithful God is, how righteous God is. He's been thinking about how wonderful God is, how God's word is pure, 
how God's righteousness is everlasting, how God's law is the truth. He's been thinking about, hey, you know, I'm going through all these things. I have enemies. I have people around me who don't care about you and about your word. But you know what a comforting fact in the middle of that is? That God's righteous. That God's faithful. That one day God's going to set it all straight. You know, for David, he had the promise of God that he would be king of Israel. He had something that he could set his hope on. He could remember the commandments of God. He could delight in the midst of trouble and anguish. Next, in verse 144, he says, The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Last of all, this evening, as we look, as we think about the passion that David had for the word of God, he prays last of all, and he asks God for understanding. He says, God, give me understanding, and I shall live. This is a serious cry out to God. For he pins his request, or he pins to his request this phrase, and I shall live. The, The idea is, God, if you don't give me understanding, I'm not going to live. I'm going to die. God, I need your understanding. I write the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. So God, give me understanding and I shall live. You know, just as for David, without understanding being granted, the end would be death. So it is for you and I. You think about salvation. Each one of us needs God to grant us understanding. Without God giving us understanding of our sin the weight of that, the conviction of the Holy Spirit without that, we're going to die eternally. We'll stand before the judgment of God, but for His mercy, but for the mercy of God to convict us. But not only that, when we think about understanding, you and I need the understanding of God that we might order our lives aright and live. What a foolish waste if we take our lives and we live according to our own understanding. What a waste to squander everything that God has given to us. You and I need the understanding of God. We need to be able to view this life and the next with the understanding that God grants us and thus properly invest our lives that we might live. David cried out to God, give me understanding and I shall live. I hope you've seen a portrait this evening of the passion that David had for the Word of God. How God's Word was something that captivated his attention. Something that he had zeal about, that consumed him. You know, what are you passionate about this evening? What is it this evening that really makes you go, that really gets you excited. David had a passion for God's word. Oh, that it would be said of you and I, they have a passion for God's word. They were someone who was really interested in the things of God. That really got them going. I couldn't get them to stop talking about God and his goodness toward them. I couldn't get them to shut up about the word of God. Oh, so often that's not 
what people would say. People would say, oh, I couldn't get them to stop talking about their favorite sports team. I couldn't get them to stop talking about their favorite hobby. They just kept going on and on. I couldn't get them to stop complaining about the weather, or about the traffic, or about their coworkers. Oh, there's so many things that give us zeal, that get us cranked up. It ought to be the Word of God. We ought to be like David.